Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society. Where we make history the Brooklyn way. Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today. And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a 154-year-old museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts, Julie Golia, Director of Public History at Brooklyn Historical Society, and Zahir Ali, Oral Historian at Brooklyn Historical Society. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. Between 1973 and 1975, Brooklyn Historical Society recorded over 80 interviews as part of the Puerto Rican Oral History Project, which chronicled the enormous impact of Puerto Rican migrants on the borough. In this episode, we examine BHS's inaugural oral history collection in the context of the civil rights movement, labor activism, and the rise of social history and ethnic studies. This is a, in so many ways, it's a political project, but it's also an intellectual project to kind of rescue and bring to light a history that had largely been unrecorded until that time. We're not colonizers of the stories of these communities where we go in and extract these community yes. stories yeah. and then re-repackage them and then sell them back to you or present them back to you in a way that we decide you're going to consume. That there is a sense of accountability, there's a sense of responsibility, that part of, uh, of taking someone's oral history is making sure that they have access to it. One thing that is very different from any other group and that is that no matter how long we stay here, whether we're born here or, or, or where we came here when we were small, we always love that little island. And we always want to go back. And our, and our parents, uh, many parents send their children of uh, vacation to visit their grandmothers and their relatives down, uh, down there. And we're not going to forget our language, regardless of, of, of what they do. And we hope that uh, New York City and a lot of cities will become bilingual cities, Spanish and English. And uh, this is good for the United States. Two thousand eighteen marks the forty fifth year that we have been doing oral history here at Brooklyn Historical Society, which is pretty remarkable. And the collection that kicked it off is going to be the subject of our episode. Um, we're going to be talking about the Puerto Rican oral history collection, which began in nineteen seventy three and concluded in nineteen seventy five. As the oral historian, these this is like one of my bragging rights. I feel like I get to say that we began our oral history program in. 1973. And uh, as our first uh, collection, it has some of our oldest narrators. The earliest birth year of one of our of our narrators is in 1880 um, from this collection. And so it's something that I've always been very proud of, that we have this collection as part of our institution. But this collection is not only significant because it's the first collection of our institution. It's significant for all of the things that it represents even more broadly. And in this episode, we'll really dig into how this ties into everything from the civil rights movement in New York City and beyond, how it ties into employment discrimination and labor activism, and then also more broadly, the way that we collect and understand and think about history and who is meant to be part of that historical record. This collection came at a very pivotal moment, both in terms of the kinds of organizing people were doing, but as well as the kind of ways people were thinking about 
the histories of these different communities. And I think with that, just to give people a sense of the actual genesis of this project, it began in 1973 when Brooklyn Historical Society, then named Long Island Historical Society, received a grant from the New York State Council on the Arts. And the purpose of the grant was to conduct interviews with Puerto Ricans who had settled in Brooklyn between 1917 and 1940. And uh, interviews were done with 69 individuals. And this this project took two years, and it wasn't without its bumps and, and obstacles, I think, uh, in going through the documentation for the project in terms of the project files, we see that they tried different ways to gather these oral histories. Um, they tried hiring people. They tried getting students. And eventually, the project itself didn't really kind of take off until uh, one uh, figure kind of decided to take control or take the helm. And that was John D. Vasquez, who was the director of the Department of Puerto Rican Studies at New York City Community College, who was teaching an oral history class um, and kind of used that basis to um, really push for the completion of this this project. One of the reasons that I think Vasquez was successful in finally sort of reining this project in and getting so many interviews is he was born and bred in Brooklyn. He knew the community in and out. He knew the context to, to be in touch with. And it's important, I think, to remember that there wasn't an enormous amount of documentation, especially of paper documentation, of this community at the time. There weren't the, like, you know, 60 books on a shelf that you could go to to brief yourself on this. In some ways, he was doing that ground-up history. He was amassing the building blocks that would then later be able to fuel generations of scholarship about uh, Puerto Ricans and their their time in Brooklyn. So it was... an it was just such a hugely important contribution to the historical record to be taking on these stories when before then they hadn't really been known um, to scholars and often to the public. Yeah, I think the role of community people was essential to the success of this project. When you look at the list of narrators and start listening to these oral histories, what emerges is a social network. Um, where people are being mentioned in each other's oral histories, and you get a sense of of community. I mean, you really get a sense, not only just the history of these disparate individuals, but you get a sense of how they interacted with each other. You get a sense of the kinds of, of ways they relied on each other, the kinds of civic engagement they, they participated in, the kind of organizations that they founded to help the members of their community. You know, for people always wonder, like, how, when, when people do oral history projects, how do you select your narrative? Um, you do kind of have a sketch of the sense that of, of who you want to interview. And then as you start canvassing and you start talking to people, you start hearing other names pop up or people make suggestions. And this was certainly the case with this project. It was embraced by members of the Puerto Rican community in Brooklyn. There were people like uh, Ramon Colon, whose cousin, uh, Jesus Colon, was a major labor organizer in New York City. I think he had passed way a few months before this project uh, started. And Ramon was a successful uh, business person, business leader in Brooklyn, and he kind of helped push for this project to be done. So I think um, what's so unique about this project is not only do you have like an institutional base for it in the form of the Long Island Historical Society, which is what BHS was known as, but you have the input and direction of a scholar in John Vasquez, and you also have the role of community people in supporting it. Absolutely. 
absolutely. And really conscious of the importance of getting down these stories, especially at this moment. And I think that there, it's it's important to emphasize that it's not a, it's not a coincidence that they are focusing on the interwar years, their, their interests between 1917 and 1940 or so. And this is for a couple of reasons. First of all, the fact that those narrators were getting older, right? And that these stories, so central to a migration experience, were going to be lost soon if they weren't recorded very quickly. You'd really get a sense when you look at the papers uh, that, there, that there is frustration when the project is stalling because they need to be getting these recordings mm-hmm. down. And mm-hmm. a sense of relief when they do. But also, for a little context on the Puerto Rican experience, there's a lot going on in the early 20th century that defines the, the Puerto Rican migration experience. I mean, first of all, the Puerto Rican migration experience in the 19th century was actually an immigration experience. Um, so Puerto Rico was um, a Spanish colony in the 19th century. And so we're talking about people coming from a Spanish holding into the United States, bringing their passports. And as a result of this, you really only see the more wealthy people coming into Brooklyn at, at that time. Actually, most people settling in Manhattan. But it's really the change takes place in the early 20th century, right? Yeah. This is part of the United States' imperial adventures, trying to catch up with Europe in land grabbing (laughs) territories and colonies and certainly having an eye to the territories and, and, and countries in the Western Hemisphere. And Puerto Rico was one of them that became a U.S. territory as a result of the Spanish-American War, the very brief Spanish-American War um, that the United States got hold of Puerto Rico as a territory. And this uh, begins, in, in as the 20th century opens, a ongoing point of contention about the status of this island nation. In fact, there was this kind of gray area of citizenship um, between the Spanish-American War and 1917, Mm -hmm. where it wasn't actually clear what the status of most Puerto Ricans were. So they weren't citizens yet, um, but they were Mm -hmm. something else. And Mm -hmm. actually, there Mm -hmm. is a series of court cases. There's a court case in 1904, Gonzalez versus Williams, in which a woman sues the government who tries to keep her out um, and who tries to detain her and then keep her out of the United States, she wins. And this kind of paves the path for what happens in 1917, which is the passage of the Jones-Shafroth Act. And this is where um, Puerto Ricans are considered citizens, Mm, mm -hmm, um, naturalized mm -hmm. citizens. Um, If you're born after 1898, um, you are now a citizen of the United States. You don't need a passport to travel between these two places. And it sets up a lot of the aspects, not all of them, but a lot of the aspects the Puerto Rican government that exists today. This is when we see the shift of, of migration to Brooklyn yes. because Brooklyn yeah. B is this this waterfront exactly. um, you know, borough yeah. with these ports of entry. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that surprised me is as we uh, went through this collection and certainly as I, I listened to oral histories of the part of this collection was how you know, how Puerto Rican Brooklyn was and how significant Brooklyn was to Puerto Rican history in New York. I mean, I grew up coming to New York um, as a young person where I knew like the Bronx and East Harlem was where the significant Puerto Rican communities were in New York City, certainly in the late 70s and, and 80s. And here, 
you really get this sense of how significant Brooklyn was and how central Brooklyn was to the Puerto Rican community in that first wave in the 20th century. And specifically Brooklyn's waterfront. And this, you know, we've talked in the past about how important Brooklyn's waterfront is to global trade. And it's also been really important to the movement of people. And after 1917, um, once Puerto Ricans were sort of officially citizens of the United States, they could quite easily move back and forth via steamship between um, New York and and Puerto Rico. It was about a five-day trip, and boats docked in at the end of Hamilton Avenue here in Brooklyn um, in what um, in the Atlantic Yards um, at Pier 35. So the New York and Puerto Rican Steamship Company began making a real killing um, after 1917, and you see this great blossoming of Puerto Rican migration by that point. What's interesting is that this first wave, uh, if we can call it a kind of a great migration on parallels when I'm yeah. thinking about the what what historians call the great migration of African African yes. Americans between World War One and World War Two, almost the same period of nineteen the nineteens to the night to nineteen forty. Um, so there is this in this context, there is a there's just these waves of migrants moving up north from the south and, and as well coming to uh, New York from Puerto Rico. And similar dynamics of push-pull, right? So in Puerto Rico, there are a series of natural disasters that kind of ravage the coffee and sugar industry. There's unemployment. So in the same way that there is, you know, rapid rampant discrimination and, you know, voter suppression in the south moving people upward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's also similar here because this is not like, you know, the panacea, right. a place to land. Right. And so right. just as African-Americans Americans faced rampant discrimination, employment, housing discrimination. Puerto Ricans dealt with the same thing. And this is one of the big themes that we see in the oral history. Yeah. And the one of the ways that the early migrants um, responded to and helped kind of try to address these was by forming these benevolent associations yes. and other kinds of newspapers. Simil- news, yeah, yeah. Yeah. These the institutions that they established to help um, not just respond to the challenges, but also facilitate adjustment to um, to life in New York City, right? And not dissimilar from previous waves of immigrants, yes. like the Irish and the Italians, who also formed benevolent associations. And then there are there are people who emerge as these um, very um, significant leaders within the Puerto Rican community, um, whose names pop up in this in this collection, right? As as the kind of go to people, whether it was the some of them formed a Democratic club or a Democratic club, or or some of them were. In the Republican club, like these party clubs um, that helped uh, people get jobs, that helped people um, get social services, that helped people get access to the resources that the city had to offer. So you do get this um, during this period of, of Puerto Ricans adjusting and also trying to form the institutions that they needed to address. And Bill, and you're absolutely right, establishing these deep roots that begin to also kind of grow again after the Second World War with another major wave of immigration, of excuse me, of migration. that takes place in the late 1940s and onward. And now we see new generations of people coming via air. Right. Um, so they're not just coming to New York anymore. They're going to lots of cities across the country, including Chicago, which is a really important hub um, in the post-war era. Yeah, it is in Chicago where the Young Lords Party is born, actually 50 years ago Amazing. in 1968. And this 
is important because it signals that Puerto Ricans were part of what we understand as the kind of broad civil rights movement of of different groups agitating for um, anti-discrimination, agitating for greater, um, you know, services, for self-determination of their identity and of their institutions and of their communities. And so you get this uh, wave of activism during this period in the civil rights movement and labor activism. And this kind of forms the um, political and cultural context for the emergence yeah. within uh, the academy of the call for ethnic studies. In fact, it is in San Francisco State University that a coalition of students that we would say now people of color, they were a third world liberation front, I think they were, um, that uh, organized for the creation of ethnic studies. So you have in the streets you have, in the communities, organizing going on in the 1960s, and that's reflected in the halls of knowledge, uh, organizing going on around ethnic studies and the emergent kind of social history movement that was happening as well. Yeah, and I think there's something very interesting going on in terms of a clash in a meeting of generations at this point, because we have these early Puerto Ricans who came in the first wave who established these roots, right? These organizations, they established sort of a foundation of a culture. But one interesting thing that you get from a lot of the notes about the oral history is that this early generation, there was a lot of interest in um, in sort of cultural assimilation of being like, we're American, we're American, we're American. And a lot of this was just because they needed to, they needed to get jobs. They needed to, they needed to make money, make their place here. And, a new generation builds on that foundation, but with a much more identity-focused approach. Um, and the focus is not assimilation, but a celebration of their particular history, their importance to American history, but the specific ways that Puerto Ricans have not just influenced New York, but sort of influenced world history writ large. And that, I think, is where the kind of the approach that you see in what you describe, this ethnic, uh, this sort of movement, this blossoming of ethnic studies is about rescuing a history that many believed had been kind of washed away. Yeah, and that kind of hyphenated, when people say right. the hyphenated American, right. um, is something that you see in the African-American community. You certainly see it in the Puerto Rican-American uh, community, certainly in the Native American community, the Chicano community, and, and even other, um, we'll say, uh, European ethnic communities yeah. that had previously kind of assimilated yes. into to what we would say whiteness in America. You see the emergence of an Italian-American identity. You see the emergence of an Irish-American identity where people um, are kind of taking cues from each other saying, oh, it's, it's okay, it's important to celebrate our ethnic heritage yeah. and that it's actually quite possible to do that within the greater context of what America is. And so this, all of this kind of shapes the context for the emergence of, of this, this project, of this Puerto Rican oral history project that BHS undertakes. This is such a fascinating point where scholarship in the academy is meeting the ground, mm -hmm. right? Is meeting activists on the ground. It's such an important thing to understand about the civil rights movement in the North is that it wasn't just a black and white thing, right? That it was actually like a, a real multicultural, like a rainbow coalition, yeah. if you will. Um, and that Puerto Ricans played a, a huge role in this. And so while we've talked about the emergence of CORE and other civil rights groups, Puerto Ricans were a big part of that. And then they were also forming their own organizations. You talked about the Young Lords. Um, the uh, Sunset Park-based uh, organization Uprose was founded in 
1966. You know, a decade or so later, we see El Puente in South Williamsburg. And so there are these on-the-ground organizations that really see, you know, employment equity, housing equity, but also are having an enormous influence on the way that we think about this history. And I think that's really where we come back to our oral history collection, right? Because this is a, in so many ways, it's a political project, but it's also an intellectual project to kind of rescue and bring to light a history that had largely been unrecorded until that time. Love this podcast? Then head over to Apple Podcasts and search for Flatbush and Maine to subscribe, rate, and review us. This increases our rankings and makes it easier for interested listeners like you to find us. In addition to the 80 interviews in this collection, um, we also have all of the kind of back-end, behind-the-scenes documentation related to the management of this project, of the Puerto Rican Oral History Project, which gives you kind of a behind-the-scenes glimpse into the way the project worked, its struggles, and what the people who were behind it were thinking and what their goals were. I, I have to say I was really geeking out reading some of this stuff because as someone who does oral history projects to see what the genesis of this project was and some of the challenges that they had and how they went about training the people who worked on the project and just the architecture of how to approach an oral history project over 40 years ago was quite illuminating, I think. And I relatable. Mean, and, re- as, <laughs> and relatable. I mean, we managed these kinds of projects today yes. and we saw some of ourselves um, in that as well. Yes, and, and I, I look forward to coming back to, to more about what was in this documentation records because there's stuff from like the late 60s, early 70s from the Oral History Association. And so the folks who managed this project, who organized this project, really, I think, did their very best to adhere to best practices from very early on. And so we found some really interesting things. I mean, I, I kept thinking about this in the in the context of all the preparation you have to bring to an oral history. A lot of people think that an oral history is just when you sit down in front of somebody and begin asking questions. But there's a mountain of research that has to go into your preparation to to ask those questions that are meant to elicit the stories that we ultimately record. And what seemed like a continual struggle for the people who were running this project um, was the fact that so few people people really understood the history of Puerto Ricans in Brooklyn. And a lot of that was because the lack of sort of support and the lack of data that they were able to draw on. And so in the beginning, you saw them hiring all of these interviewers who immediately became overwhelmed by the job of having to prepare for these incredibly important interviews because they didn't feel like they had the resources to understand this important history. And and that is made clear in the first document that we're going to look at in this segment of Into the Archives, which is actually dated 1971. So the collection, as we We've mentioned began the collecting began in 1973, but a full two years, at least a two years in advance or before then, you see attempts to think about this issue of the paucity 
of materials that exist in archives on the histories of Puerto Rican communities in in New York City. Yeah, and I think that you know this is also this is a time when um, Long Island Historical Society, which is what we were called back then, was really starting to think about the holes in their collection. We've talked about the history of our institution before, but you know, influenced by everything that we talked about in the previous segment, by ethnic studies, by the rise of social history, by by telling a history that honored the diversity of who Brooklyn was by the end of the 20th century. Um, The people who ran the Brooklyn Historical Society understood that they needed to start to correct those holes. And so what we're looking at first is a letter written by the society's executive director, a man named John H. Lindenbush, to none other than Jesus Colon, who was an incredibly important figure in the history of Puerto Rican communities in early and mid-20th century Brooklyn. Yes, he was born in 1901 in Puerto Rico and migrated to the United States actually in 1917. I mean, this is the perfect, he would have been the perfect candidate for this project. Um, He unfortunately passed away a few months before the project commenced. Mm -hmm. And so he was not someone that the project was able to interview, but he was was essential to, to getting this project off the ground. He was a writer. He's considered the father of the New Yorican movement. Um, He was well-known as a labor organizer and wrote about his experiences. He wrote a column in The Daily Worker beginning in 1955. Um, As an organizer, he was brought before HUAC, which is the House Un-American Activities Committee that was tasked with investigating communists and communist sympathizers. He was most absolutely a uh, Marxist-leaning thinker, and he was a historian. He wrote about the um, histories of of uh, Puerto Ricans in several publications. So it makes perfect sense that the executive director of the Long Island Historical Society would write Jesus Colon for his advice, for guidance, for reflections, for his thoughts on embarking on a project like this. Yeah, it's like as if we were putting together a project and we contacted the foremost person who would know about this. And I think what is really what is really interesting about this letter is how Frank um, Lindenbush is about how little they know and how little, frankly, the society holds on this history. And so he says, you know, um, Brooklyn is the most populous borough where Puerto Ricans live in New York. And he says, basically, he proposes a series of questions. What factors underlay the migration to Brooklyn rather than some other area? What experiences or problems have been encountered in Brooklyn? How do these differ from other places? And then he goes on to say, as you well know, at this point, the society would be of little help in providing information. We want to change that situation as quickly and dramatically as we can. And he basically goes on to suggest creating a Puerto Rican studies collection. Which, again, I think gets back to this theme of Puerto Rican studies Mm -hmm. that you raised in our Mm -hmm. earlier second, Puerto Rican studies, African-American studies, ethnic studies. He wants to focus in on the sort of the particular genesis of this community. And now I think, you know, we now know this is an oral history collection, but at the time they weren't sure. Right. Mm -hmm. And so he proposes, um, you know, bringing in um, publications, other documentation. But he does say at the end of the letter that our efforts and attention should also be directed 
directed, I think, toward an oral history program. This made Zahir and I smile a little bit because this yes. is like the, the birth of our program Absolutely. here, we you know, 1971. Found, <laughs> yeah, we just found the letter giving birth to our oral history program. It's pretty awesome. And um, not to be too back padding, but... I think this is really significant um, to see this exchange and to see this, as you said, candor uh, and admission that, you know, on these important historical questions about New York City, about Brooklyn, that the executive director says, like, we don't we don't have what we should have. And this is really important for us to do. And yeah, we should fix that. And that. Critical to that is oral history. Absolutely. I mean, this is like the raison d'etre of my job. Exactly. <laughs> and it's why... what we continue to do yeah, today. Yeah. Like with, with Muslims in Brooklyn, our yes. most you know recent project yeah. very much came out of us assessing the collections and saying this is an essential piece to understanding yeah. Brooklyn and we don't yeah. have it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, you know, I think then, you know, as we talked about, this goes on to become a robust oral history collection, not without its challenges, but by the end, you know, four years after this letter was written, they had amassed, you know, over 80 interviews. But I think there's one thing that is very important to understand about oral history is that it's not just about that process of sitting in front of somebody and taking the interview. You know, we talked about the research that goes into the before, Mm -hmm. but then just as important is the after in this question of access, Mm -hmm. right? The question of being able, now we've collected these, how are we going to get these stories out there? And this is something that it seems that the society really struggled with in the 1970s. Yeah, and this is in the context of oral histories where oral historians were so, with a great sense of urgency, enthusiastic to collect, 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 interview as many people as possible, and very seldom did people really put a lot of thought into the processing, the cataloging, the transcribing, the, you know, it was like, we'll think these things were afterthoughts. And sometimes it was a resources issue, but some, and sometimes it was just like, we just need to get these interviews yeah, done. Absolutely. And we see that even in getting the interviews done, some of the documentation we looked at for this project, that it wasn't as easy as just, you know, giving someone a recorder and saying, go out and, and interview people. And so at the same time that this project is going on, you know, as we had described, there were all these other organizations that were seeing their genesis, some of them in the academy, some of them sort of on the ground um, and as community organizations. One of the former was the 1973 creation at the City University of New York of Centro de Estudios de Puerto Ricanos which is often shortened to Centro, right. right? And Centro continues to be the sort of center of Puerto Rican studies here in New York City and beyond. And if we look at this, first of all, this poster that we found in the collection, which we'll link to all of these things on our show notes, it's a really, it's a really wonderful piece um, that is commemorating a 1983 reading of the writings of none other than Jesus Colon, mm-hmm. who we had just been talking about. Mm-hmm. And so they're honoring his history about a decade after his death. And accompanying that poster is this kind of almost like a mission statement, I guess, of, of Centro, um, printed, of course, in English and in Spanish. And they say here, you know, 
The Centro de Estudios Puertoriqueños, the Center for Puerto Rican Studies, was founded by the City University of New York in 1973. An outgrowth of the civil rights and student movement of the 1960s, the Centro was the first university-based research unit in New York that set out to develop a Puerto Rican perspective on Puerto Rican problems and issues. And so they would seem kind of a key development um, that's happening at the same time as the collection of this oral history here. And when you look at this document, you see a list of task forces like History and Migration Task Force, the Language Policy Task Force, Culture and the Arts. Uh, And this gives you a sense that Centro was not just a hub of research and scholarship, but it was a hub of community engagement, that this was part of the model that many ethnic studies programs adopted, that they were responding to and engaging with the communities out of which they emerged. And certainly this is the case to reflect, you know, the social movements, the civil rights movements, the labor movements that provided the context for the emergence of, of ethnic studies during this period. Yeah, and I think the language of the task force really reflects that, right? So there's an immediacy to it. Um, There's a notion of sort of political engagement, um, of the need to correct the the historical record with the new data that this center is gathering. Yeah, it's very action-oriented, and this was the spirit of activism that informed this generation of scholars that rejected this binary that suggested that academic or intellectual work was divorced from practical benefits to a community. And I think that that's very much um, reflected here. And in this vein, coming back to the Puerto Rican oral history collection, the mere act of collecting is a political act, right? And also not just, the, as we were saying, the collection of those oral histories, but also the dissemination, the question of access for those oral histories. And this brings us to our last document that we're going to look at, which is a letter probably dating in the early 1980s from Carlos Sanabria, who is um, from the Oral History Task Force of Centro. So this is clearly a new task force that has been found, that has been established since the last document that we looked at. And it's written to Lucinda Manning, who is the librarian at the Long Island Historical Society, today the Brooklyn Historical Society. And in this letter, Carlos Sanabria is informing Ms. Manning that there's a project that the CETRO is starting on Puerto Rican migration to New York City and, and says Uh, Needless to say, the Long Island Historical Society's Puerto Rican oral history collection is a very valuable source of documentation on this subject. Unfortunately, the transcripts of these interviews cannot be located, and the tapes, recorded as they were 10 years ago, are in somewhat brittle condition. It would therefore facilitate our work very much if we could arrange to borrow this collection for the purpose of copying, transcribing, and using this material in the course of our research. And this might not seem like that big of a deal, but this is a non-lending library, as most archives are. And so to take these collections, remember, these are the only versions of this collection, to a different place is actually a rather unorthodox thing to ask. And I think, you know, Sanabria really acknowledges that and even sends a check as a kind of a deposit, an act of goodwill. And I think what's key here is this idea that we can, you know, take 80 oral histories, but if there are no transcripts and no access to possibly damaged tapes, 
these they, they it's it's almost like they don't exist and they can't continue to contribute um, to future scholarship going forward. And Santa Maria and Centro has a really keen sense of the politics of making these accessible. And we we learned from a subsequent letter that this exchange does happen. And as a result of this exchange, the collection is transcribed and the recordings are preserved. And, you know, this is very much in the spirit of uh, oral history best practices. Uh, We use this phrase, shared authority and informed consent to talk about the relationship between a narrator and an interviewer or a narrator and an institution. And I think this is very much an extension. What happens here between Long Island Historical Society and Centro is very much an extension of that relationship. This acknowledgement that, um, you know, we're not colonizers of the stories of these communities where we go in and extract these communities' stories stories and then re-repackage them and then sell them back to you or present them back to you in a way that we decide you're going to consume, that there is a sense of accountability, there's a sense of responsibility, that part of of taking someone's oral history is making sure that they have access to it. Absolutely. And that sense of community responsibility, I think, is reflected in this exchange between Centro and and then Long Island history. And this commitment, I think, continues to this day. This is one of the sort of the major pushes for us to develop our oral history portal. Um, So we went from a place where there was, you know, no transcripts. And thanks to Centro, we had transcripts. And now today in 2018, all of you can go on our website, on our oral history portal, and listen to all of the interviews from this remarkable collection. In this episode of Voices of Brooklyn, we are going to listen to an oral history with Celia Maria Vise from the inaugural collection, the Puerto Rican Oral History Collection. And this is one of my favorite narrators because of how much she did to uh, celebrate and um, champion Puerto Rican heritage in New York City. In a lot of ways, she's incredibly representative of the patterns of migration that we've talked about. Celia Vise was born in Guyana, Puerto Rico in 1913. Um, She came to Brooklyn arriving at Pier 9 aboard a steamship and then lived in what is today the neighborhoods of um, Vinegar Hill and Dumbo, later moving to Williamsburg and then Bedford-Stuyvesant. She held factory jobs. She held office jobs. She actually worked in a defense plant during World War II and was incredibly active in her community. She played a major role in the New York City Human Rights Commission. Um, She helped found a number of Puerto Rican organizations, um, including El Museo del Barrio, um, and was the first Latina Grand Marshal of the Puerto Rican Day Parade. She eventually moved back to Puerto Rico in 1979 and passed away in 1993. So with that, we're going to listen to our first clip. One thing that is very different from any other group, and that is that no matter how long we stay here, whether we're born here or, or, or we're, we came here when we were small, we always loved that little island, and we always want to go back. And our, and our parents, uh, many parents and their children of vacation to visit their grandmothers and their relatives down, uh, down there, and we're not going to forget our language, regardless of, of, of what they do. And we hope that uh, New York City and a lot of cities will become bilingual cities, Spanish and English. And uh, this is good for the United States. And th- this is good for, uh, for, for other groups. Other groups are really following our footsteps. 
you know, the Italians now are beginning to say, hey, I'm Italian, or the Irish, hey, listen, you know, and they have forgotten, they came here and they forgot. And I think that we've contributed to that, to that awareness, and, and anyone should be proud of whatever they are. What I love about this clip is that she so succinctly blows up the cliche of the melting pot. Yes. The idea that you're supposed to come to the United States and somehow mix, you know, your culture right. into some cauldron and make it into something else. There's such a beautiful and positive advocacy of the maintenance of one's own culture, of one's own practices, of one's own language. And then I think what's really unique and distinct about this um, is it's also about going back and forth. Yes. That they love the island. It's not just about loving being Puerto Rican, you know, Puerto Rican in New York. It's about being able to go back and forth, that flow of cultures between the two places. Something that, of course, the steamship and then the airplane made possible. You see in American history this swinging back and forth between a forgetting of the past yes. and a recovering of the past. And, um, you know, she I like how she talks about it. you see this with the Italians, with the Irish, and they were certainly in the 1970s, this almost explosion of, and you see it in popular culture, you know, uh, books or movies like Roots. Yep. You know, there is this like celebration of and recovery of your, of where you come from. And uh, I, I think that the ethnic studies movement and certainly the work of so-called people of color, the work of minority populations in the United States really um, established a, a foundation for everyone to think twice about the thing that they thought they were forgetting or shedding when they came to America. You know, this was the the American process of Americanization was you you came and you became a new person and you people took new names and, you know, you were self-made. And, and here we are with another model that says it is very possible to be in America and still remember where you came from and celebrate where you came from. And I really like that she, you know, not just in terms of talking about Puerto Rico and Puerto Ricans, but talking about other groups as well. It's like you can be proud to be both. Yeah, yeah. Let's listen to another clip here. Okay. The purpose of Puerto Rican heritage is to uh, promote and to project the history and the culture and the talents of Puerto Ricans. Uh, many people think that uh, Puerto Rico is a, is, a, is a savage country. You know, we walk around with a with little, little taparrabo. I forgot, I don't know how to say it in English. You know, taparrabo, a little thing around our waist and, and walk around with knives. We have no history. And even though our history is part of the history of the United States, and by the way, that's why I think that uh, his, the history of Puerto Rico should be taught in, 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 uh, in the United States because the history of Puerto Rico is part of the history of the United States. We are a colony, and uh, therefore we should, we should, uh, everybody, not only Puerto Ricans, should really know about uh, uh, the, the what's going on in Puerto Rico. Um, uh, I, I, I believe that somebody had to start it. It's not an easy kind of a thing because books are difficult to get. The even though they were, we have many, many wonderful authors. We have uh, talented artists, painters, who are, who are up to uh, recently are really, uh, nobody knows them, but they have terrific talent. We have contemporary uh, and old masters like, uh, like Oyer, Campeche in the 17th century, that their paintings are hung in the Louvre and in all parts of the world. We have uh, 
we have the uh, the um, the history of our Taino Indians, which was uh, if you see the pottery and if you see the the uh, all the artifacts that they that they uh, that they made, uh, you knew that these people were really 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 talented. One of the things driving ethnic studies was this corrective impulse to correct misconceptions and stereotypes about these communities. And the belief was by recovering the past, you could correct what people contributed. There's a lot of contributionism, right, that was very much a part of ethnic studies, at least in this wave, right? Like we've contributed to uh, civilization. We've contributed to American history. And she says it like our history is part of American history. And I think this was during this moment, it was really important to make that kind of statement. And and that's very much reflected in in what she's saying about Puerto Rican uh, contributions to America, but also like kind of going through like quote unquote Western civilization yeah. and like pointing out these contributions. I think but I think actually what she does is it's contributionism, but it also and if you I feel like this is a little I'm interpreting what she's saying, but it's also actually a different view of history. And I think, you know, when she says we are a colony, it's mm-hmm. it, so I think what's also important about ethnic studies is that an argument would be is that these cultures didn't just add to America. They actually, when we include them in a picture, they change the way that we analyze and understand the trajectory of American history. You know, today I think we take so many tenets of social history for granted. But this was a really revolutionary thing to say, to look at the the stories of different groups of people, of people of color, of Hispanic people, of immigrants. We can actually c- come at American history with a completely different lens. You know, like much of American history for most of the 20th century was taught very much through a Whiggish progressive lens. We don't talk always talk a lot about colonialism yeah. and America yeah. as a colonial power, yeah. right? Yeah. And actually when we br- go back to the Spanish-American War and we think about the sort of that 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 gray understanding of Puerto Ricans and their role to citizenship and their role of Americanism, it actually changes our understanding of American history. And I think Vise is really getting at this at at an early date. Yeah, I really appreciate you highlighting that. Like that one word colony does turn this into a, a very powerful analysis of power, right? And I think one of the strengths of oral history in general, but in this collection in particular, in this this narrator, is uh, a way to hear through the personal experience, the way the personal is ex- the person experiences power and structures of power and the impact and the ways that they react to it. And I think you don't get a full-on treatise, right? But you do get these hints and you do get these suggestions. And when you think about how power operates in people's lives, I mean, there are certainly oppressive governments and oppressive regimes that are very ever present in the lives of people. But certainly in the United States and in in places we regard as free societies, power still operates, but it operates in a much more kind of quotidian, mundane ways. It's little hints here and there. And and that's what allows the system to maintain itself because you, you believe that you are are free. And so in these oral histories, you there's a freedom there with these hints of, but we know that we were a colony, that we know that there's this, that we know that there's that. And I think that's what I love so much about oral history is that you get you really see how power operates in the lives of people. It operates not so intrusively when it operates effectively. It operates in hints and drops and drabs. 
As we look at our selections of events in November that we want to recommend you check out, I think both Julie and I have politics on the brain with events that are uh, either before or after the upcoming midterm elections. Uh, My recommendation is for an event taking place the day before the elections on Monday, November 5th at 6.30 p.m., and it is titled Elections in the Age of Trump. And on this eve of the midterm elections, we will have 538.com's senior political writer, Claire Malone, leading a conversation with John Sides, a professor of political science at George Washington University and co-author of the new book, Identity Crisis, the 2016 Presidential Campaign and the Battle for the Meaning of America. They will be in conversation on Monday, November 5th. The doors open at 6. The event begins at 6.30 p.m. $5 general admission and free for members. Julie, your event is? The day after the election. So you may either be thrilled or in mourning. (laughs) But either way, a little bit of historical perspective will probably do you good. So head over to Brooklyn Historical Society in Brooklyn Heights on the 7th of November. That's a Wednesday. In order to hear from two of our esteemed colleagues in the library, Maggie Schreiner and Laura Giuliano. They're going to be talking about and giving a glimpse into a recent uh, manuscript collection that we acquired that is, I've had a sort of a sneak peek of already, and it's absolutely fantastic. It's the Brooklyn for Peace collection. Um, This is a 30-year-old organization that is known for its involvement in local, national, and international political issues, including nuclear disarmament, military recruitment, and more. And so they are going to be showing some of the wonderful documents, press releases, flyers, pamphlets, and so many other things that are in this historically significant collection. So that's Wednesday, November 7th um, at 6.30 p.m. Um, We will be linking to Eventbrite pages for both of these events on the show notes. And with this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we've made Brooklyn history. You can learn more about Flatbush in Maine at brooklynhistory.org slash flatbush dash Maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts, and clips and info on oral histories. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast platform you use. Our audio editor is Tim Dacchino. Our show music is by Joe Schloss. Find out more about him at josephschloss.com. Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history. From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are your hosts, Zahir Ali and Julie Golia. <laughs>